Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, providing creative tools that help you bring your ideas to life. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, and 24-7 support. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer code GUARDIAN to get 10% off. The Guardian. Hello and welcome to Media Talk, Hume Your for John Plunkett. On this week's podcast, Lord Justice Leveson faces MPs over press regulation. All changed, the new Director General Tony Hall sets out his plans for the BBC. We celebrate 40 years of LBC, Britain's first ever commercial radio station. And Downton Abbey upsets viewers on a Sunday evening. I'm Hume Your, and this is Media Talk from The Guardian. And joining me this week are media journalist Maggie Brown and The Guardian's very own Lisa O'Carroll. Welcome to both of you. Lisa, let me start with you. What's your media week been like? Yeah, very busy week. Just come back from the um, Leveson Inquisition. Um, Brian Leveson takes the questions as opposed to asking them. Um, So that was quite interesting. Um, A sketch writer's um, field day rather than a news reporter. Um, There wasn't a lot of news out of it, but it was a fun-ish two hours. I think... um, John Whittingdale, the chairman who I'd spoken to yesterday, um, had expected a bit more of a lively punch-up and he didn't really get that one. Brian Levinson was absolutely having um, having uh, having it his own way, which because was, course, I'm a judge and I'm not required and I've got no authority to speak on my report. Because he appeared before the House of Lords Committee, or a House of Lords Committee, on Wednesday. Yeah. And spoke a lot and said not very much. Yeah. Um, over two hours, which is an achievement in itself. Um, and so I think the Culture, Media and Sport Committee at the House of Commons were, kind of, were hoping for a bit more, but they didn't really get it, did they? Well, they, they, didn't, they didn't get a lot, but they did. I mean, he started off by giving a very lengthy answer, five to seven minutes long, in which he read out some of his report, explaining why he couldn't answer anything. And then he carried on in that vein for a little bit. And then there were some uh, interesting questions about arbitration, which is totally inside baseball for people who are following um, uh, press reform discussion. It is very interesting. It's one of the things that the local newspapers and Ipso, this new press body that is is due to be set up by the, the industry, but which hasn't got the backing of the government. They really are making this one of their issues now. The um, arbitration unit that Levison had recommended was something that during the Levison inquiry, newspapers thought would be a good idea because libel is so expensive for newspapers. You can spend half a million, a million quid um, on a libel action. So as you might expect, lots of newspapers fold with Mm. the threat of a libel action. Um, And um, this arbitration unit would be a a quick and cheap way of dealing with libel and breaches of privacy. It wouldn't deal with uh, uh, issues of accuracy um, or anything that wasn't a breach of a law. Um, but the local papers have um, been uh, very vocal about the cost implications, saying that at the moment, um, most of their complaints, in fact, all of their complaints that they don't deal with initially themselves, go to the Press Complaints Commission. Of the 1,200 pla- complaints that the PCC deal with, about a third of them come from local papers. So the PCC, in a way, is a f- outsourced complaints readers editors yeah. unit if you like for local newspapers so with the arbitration unit all they see is cost 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 that they will have lawyers tra- trawling through papers and say oh look mrs reed something's been written about you it's um potentially libelous do you want to take it like a ppi lawyer um they will basically be farming for claims yeah. and looking for compensation they reckon local newspapers groups reckon it cost five grand or so to deal with a complaint because you have to hire QCs. Now, so Levison today was asked about that and he said he just doesn't recognise that scenario at all. 
it was total nonsense that it was he said it was a wonderful carrot and stick idea that he had come up with that um it would, <laughs> if i say so myself my idea was brilliant yeah um that a basically a litigant um and there were some of these an ex- a clear example he remembered it as well was given by Lionel Barber the editor of the FT during the inquiry where he explained that you get these hugely wealthy Russian oligarchs who will use libel laws in Britain to stifle um, to censor basically reports because they know that uh, the FT won't be able to you know can't justify the expense of defending yeah. itself so the incentive to join the um, new PCC would be because of this arbitration unit, because a litigant who went to the high court and didn't actually use this lower court, as it were, would be penalised and would have to pay costs of the other side, um, even if they won, that kind of thing. So I think he kind of, he tried to hold that argument that the newspaper, local newspapers um, have been using um, to get their own way. It's a fascinating it. so, process, isn't it? Because on the one hand, he keeps saying, I've delivered my report. I don't really feel I need to discuss it any further. But there are clearly things that are are irritating him. And so he does feel the need in certain circumstances to dive back into the fray and say, no, 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 you're right about that. But... The areas, it the areas, seem to be clear. the His areas where is not clear he, one, is it? the areas where he dropped his own sort of standards in relation to no comment were related to the law because he knows the law. Um, arbitration was one, and exemplary damages was another. One of the MPs quizzed him about exemplary damages, and the likes of Associated Newspapers have said that the penalty, basically, he recommended that um, newspapers would face who didn't join the regulator. Yeah would face this exemplary damages penalty if, if they, they went get, to court. They get, yeah, they, they Hacked off and the likes of those say, there's nothing to worry about. It's only in the most egregious li- cases of libel or breaches of privacy that uh, any judge would award exemplary damages against a newspaper. Pa- people like Associated are saying, we will go to court, we will go to Europe to test this. And ourselves and other newspapers hired a very imminent, bu- eminent bunch of um, QCs to um, look at this. And they concluded that Brian Levison had... Hadn't, hadn't got it right and the, that he had ignored a particular yeah. piece of case law. Mm. Now, he got very vexed when this was put to him today and um, was said, Philip Davies tried to say to him that he failed to take any evidence on this issue and he said, you know, looked at him kind of contemptuously and said, the evidence, my dear, is the law. This is what judges do. They look at case law. I don't need to ask, you know... Um, lay people what they think the law is the law so his brow furrowed and that was another extraordinary straight back performance from the judge uh, one of those trying to get him to maybe open his heart a little share a little confide in friendly faces was the Labour MP Paul Farrelly who sits on the Culture, Media and Sports Select Committee and I spoke to him a bit earlier so Paul Farrelly another long session with uh, Lord Justice Leveson what did we learn? It was a marathon two and a half hours uh, again this morning I think uh, Sir Brian Leveson, as he's now known in his new job, is um, is actually a class act, and uh, he couldn't have been clearer. His report sounds trite, really does speak for itself. It's it's very clear his recommendations, and uh, those recommendations are are very clear yardsticks by which to judge any proposals, any charters, any any new regulators. What we learned today really was uh, his slight frustration at the delays and uh, his frustration about how his report has been misrepresented by his opponents, uh, whom he, 
he doesn't believe we'll ever agree with him, no matter no matter what else he says. So, do you think that he handled it in a reasonable way today? Because there was lots of uh, talk after his appearance at the House of Lords when he didn't seem to say very much, and people felt that he should be opening up more. Did you not feel that yourself? I uh, found the session today exactly as uh, as uh, as I'd expected. It's pointless trying to lay traps for a judge like this who's very experienced, who's been very clear about the boundaries that he will, will not cross. It's not, it wasn't really an occasion to get him to, to comment on things such as the Royal Charter that were, were outside his brief. Um, I think we, uh, we did get a, uh, an indication that although he hadn't considered a Royal Charter as a mechanism for the press, it was very much a mechanism and if his objectives and recommendations could be uh, achieved by that means, then, then so be it. Do you think anything he said helped to try and resolve this impasse that we seem to have reached in terms of regulation? I think maybe some people were hoping he would say something that would break that logjam. No, uh, I don't think, as he said himself, it's realistic that he could ever break a, a logjam. One side, uh, uh, led by the likes of the Mail and the Telegraph, is clearly dug in to, re- to resist whatever is uh, placed uh, before Parliament uh, tomorrow as a final uh, tweaked version of the Charter. And he is under no illusions that, that anything he says will, will, will change that. Paul Farrelly, thank you very much. Paul Farrelly there. So, Lisa, we've heard from uh, Leveson again, and there is this continuing argument about where we go from here, um, which of the, the, the various m- modes of press re- regulation will prevail, whether it's the government and uh, the Royal Charter that I think would come into force, uh, that they would see, sign off on tomorrow, or whether there'll be the industry one, or whether they'll be running in parallel. What do you think? I mean, wh- where are we now? Give us the well, idiot's I think, guide. Well, Maria, Maria Miller made it very plain that a draft, final draft of the government's Royal Charter will be published on Friday if the three parties didn't agree to the changes, which weren't going to be very substantial, um, if they didn't agree to them, they would be backed with the 18th of March cross-party agreement and they would go ahead and bring that into law. The next step would be to set up a recognition panel and then there, there's um, where you get the division again um, in practice. Um, Ipso, which is being led by Associated Telegraph, Mirror, News and Data, local papers and magazines, will not apply to that recognition panel for recognition so they would go it alone it's unlikely that the guardian the ft and the independent i'm not sure yet where they stand um they are open-minded but waiting to see what will happen with it you know ipso may make some will some, they have their own regulator will that well, be they, no, three? a newspaper on its own cannot afford to have a regulator you know the regulator costs several million pounds to run um so i mean the best guess is that ipso will will um be established the PCC will close at midnight one day in January. Ipso will start. The Guardian, the FT and the Indy may or may not be in it, but if they're not, the general feeling is that something will run for six months to a year and eventually everybody will be on the same plot of land um, and singing from the same hymn sheet. I think that's... Is that because by then we'll know what works? Even if the if, if the press version of it... Uh, isn't uh, isn't recognised, but it may well have had time to bed itself in by then. And the politicians may well just say, "Oh well, that seems to work. Why don't we go with that?" Yes, and th- then they may may decide that that it does actually comply with the government policy and that it can get recognition from the recognition panel. I mean, Alan Rusbridge himself, back in March, wrote a full page saying, "Let's have let's have a, a system whereby we have a year to prove that we can show that you know we can demonstrate to the public and to the press that this works." 
Um, you know, so that's not far off what Ipsa are doing, although, you know, they lie apart on the issue of indep- the independence of the regulator from the funding newspapers. Just one more thing. While we're waiting for um, one side or the other to prevail, the papers themselves are uh, at each other's throats pretty much, aren't they? If you look at the, the, uh, some of the stories this week about the mail having a go at The Guardian, The Guardian having a go at The Mail, um, what kind of state is the industry going to well, be Well, I mean, I, I look at that and think that's really healthy. You know, The Guardian has uh, media criticism as part of, you know, its core product, the Daily Mail, Daily Mail. We all know what it's like. It's having a happy, go. At, happy it's go having at the jolly, go. The Guardian, yeah. and in one way, you could say that's fantastic publicity for the Guardian to be on the front page of the Mail two days in a row. Um, I think it's a bit of a it's it's a bit of a a faux storm. Myself, it'll it'll peter out. And I wonder if it's selling any papers. Yeah, yeah. That's the big question. Lisa, thanks very much. That wraps up part one. Lisa will be busy on this story for some time, one suspects, and you can read all the twists and the turns on our mighty website, theguardian.com forward slash media. A good man to know in a crisis, perhaps, but this week, new director general of the BBC, Tony Hall, stepped back a bit and gave his first major speech about the corporation's direction in future. And Maggie, I'm sure you were monitoring it. What did he say? Well, he had a degree of passion to him. He was talking really about a BBC that was returning somewhat to Rethian values, while at the same time updating its technology and, for example, expanding into the tablet mobile world in an attempt, of course, to capture younger uh, viewers and listeners. He also stressed the importance of the arts to, to the BBC, to the importance of music, and the fact that they had many uh, cultural organisations that they could partner with. For example, more work with theatres, first nights, the rest of it, festivals, things which are, if you like, adding to the sort of the cultural sense of Britain being a, a, a place where we have a great many creative people. More drama. He wants more uh, drama on BBC One in particular. He wants a big, broad BBC Two. And he wants BBC Four to be very much a place for culture and uh, the, the, the things that really, in a way define some aspects of public service broadcasting. He was notably silent on the question of um, BBC Three, but um, very much uh, in favour of Radio One becoming almost a video channel, being almost like a, a broadband station or channel, like almost a YouTube channel, I felt, and drawing closer, I believe, with BBC Three. So it may well be that that fits into the gap that the BBC does have in appealing to teenagers looking ahead over the next few years, because only uh, last week or so we had a report about the state of children's television at the BBC and this notable concern about what happens to the over-12s. Answer, the BBC really doesn't cater for them in terms of uh, uh, television unless they're watching adult programmes. So there was that aspect to it. I think that there are concerns that right at the end he dropped this... um, bombshell that not only would people be experiencing the 20% cut in BBC spending by the end of the charter 2016, there would be another £100 million to pay for some of his ambitions, for example, making, I think, content for for the mobile world. And that, when I came out of the conference, uh, there were the the so-called grandees, the stakeholders who were all thinking about, oh, good, we're going to have money for the Arts Council Space uh, Online Arts Initiative. But the people who actually run services were saying, oh, crikey, we face further cuts. Where is that £100 million going to come out of? And 
inevitably people think it's going to come out of existing program budgets. So that's so the, the conundrum. The pill was sugar coated, and and there were specific things he talked about, which presumably will cost money as well, like the uh, personalised eye player. Why do we need yes. that? Yes. Well, I suppose it's because this is. It almost feeds back to what Tessa Giles said in an article in the Guardian uh, a month or so ago, when there was concerns about the BBC Trust, about almost maybe it should be a mutual at the BBC, and people need to feel that they actually own the BBC, that they're they're, they're not just licence fee payers, they're actually actively involved. And so I think that the idea is that you can almost schedule your own channel eventually, eventually, of course, not not absolutely now, uh, out of the things, the picks that you yourself would would, would uh, you know, like to watch if you maybe had the time or, or you were a bit more savvy. And they seem to be suggesting that if you actually uh, maybe choose something on, your, on the iPlayer of the future, it will then suggest to you things that you may like as well. I think that's a bit of a dangerous road to, to go down myself because it can look very bossy. I think, I think when I saw that first, and um, I don't cover the BBC in the way I used to many years ago, but I just thought that was so um, anachronistic. It was such an old-fashioned yeah. idea. We all choose to watch stuff now. We've all got personal anyway. record. We do it anyway. So BBC, come on, catch up. Yeah. The Netflix um, user experience, I'm so impressed with it. I'm a recent um, subscriber after, you know, the... Uh, 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 all publicity about Breaking Bad, and it is so impressive, and it makes the iPlayer look quite old-fashioned. I um, agree. Although and the, the quantity when, of and quality of stuff on the BBC is up, is when B Sky B brought in, with. brought in the digital, uh, you know, the, the Sky Plus ten years ago, where you could just uh, they started suggesting programs to people, and it was so irritating. You know, it was dropped. I think though that what a lot of what was being announced, that the actual concrete things, you're absolutely right, are, are just catch-ups. For example, that the iPlayer can allow you 30-day access. Well. Come on, that, instead of seven days, that already exists elsewhere. Also, you know, the, the idea of BBC Plus One, that was brought in by Channel 4 in 2006 and copied by ITV. Yeah, I and, you know, if they're going TV to do it, why not do BBC Two? Should they be spending money on things that other people are doing? Well, they, I think the plus idea is very sensible because it just it just meshes with how quite lazy people, you know, I mean, I mean, normal viewers just sitting on the sofa at nine o'clock at night think, oh, oh God, I missed that eight o'clock show. I'd have liked to watch it. Oh, well, I'll just go and do a plus but one. But normal I viewers... You know, to show me a 25-year-old or even a 40-something-year-old who watches doesn't watch something on their computer now if they're in any way savvy. Well, they, they can do, but I mean, at the same time, the, the, uh, okay, temp- I don't know, but the bulk of viewing is still done on your main TV set. A plus one isn't a revolutionary idea. And one of the strange things about that announcement was that when I asked afterwards, oh, so when's the BBC One plus one coming? They couldn't say because it hasn't been negotiated yet. It has to all go through the BBC Trust. So on, there are some things which are very clear policy or, or just announcements that are happening. Other things are much more kind of airy-fairy in the future. But let's let's face it, the BBC, for example, was finally saying, yes, we are going to actually get our archive together. Now they're going to charge you for it, this idea of a BBC store. But this idea goes back to sort of 2006. And, and it's been available happened. overseas. If you get the BBC in Ireland, exactly. you have to pay and you get the archive and you pay. The other thing it's is, available. you know, doubling the global audience is, is, is another interesting aspect to go for, to. For the online opinion. audience. Well, both online and they're talking about BBC World News. Now, uh, BBC.com does also charge, I think, and I think BBC World News uh, has advertising. So clearly there are some very interesting commercial challenges, to put it at its mildest, for what you might call BBC Worldwide. And I think we're going to hear more about that 
in, in next week and in the, in the weeks to come. Isn't that just going to result in a lot of people accusing the BBC once again of parking its tanks on their lawn? Absolutely. I think it's in danger of treading on a lot of toes. As I sat there, I just could think of all of the different constituencies out there who might be a bit too scared at the point of being, uh, being informed about all of this to come out and shout about it. But further down the line, I think there are going to be a lot of questions um, raised, especially because... When, it, when you get down to the, the, the core of what the BBC does, it should be doing things that the commercial sector cannot do. There is a whole area of, of that, from both investigative journalism and, and documentaries through to actually quite high art forms, which uh, they, they should be doing, uh, which maybe even Sky Arts don't want to do. So that there are lots of questions. And making it freely available to everybody. So, so there are lots of questions. More innovation, but also more cuts. So uh, how, what's morale like at the end of well, that? Well, I, I think I, I would say that the moment I walked out of that room, anybody running a BBC service was basically just rather gloomy. And it was really Reinforced. I, I was speaking at an event in the evening, and that was reinforced by anonymous BBC senior BBC journalists and, and other p executives there, who just said they f they just saw it as a means of taking more money out of programming. And remember, the speech said nothing about executive pay. It did talk about halving the number of these boards and committees, but it didn't actually talk about pay levels and this gap between the executive class and everybody else who runs around, gets hot and sweaty and actually makes these fantastic programmes. Because, as you said, he talked about the uh, return to Rethian values. I always wonder when people say that, because what does that actually mean? That's the problem, isn't it, that it sounds good. I don't, I don't believe Tony Hall is a cynical man at all, actually, and I think he actually does think that that is a, it, that, that is a goal and, it's, and this is exactly what the BBC should be doing. But how you manoeuvre all of the uh, organisation behind that and actually make a reality of it when there are so many other challenges going on. I really don't know. But you have to say, look, he's only been there six months. It was an impressive start. And I tell you something, it was a hell of a lot more impressive than uh, than a year ago when poor old George Entwistle uh, gave us his sort of vision in the BBC canteen. Now that is starting from a low base. <laughs> Maggie, thanks for that. It was 40 years ago this week when the UK airwaves opened up to commercial radio stations for the first time. The launch of London's LBC broke the BBC's monopoly on local radio. And this week they celebrated with a party on the 29th floor of the Millbank Tower. A lot of powerful types there, a lot of respectable types too, and a few ne'er-do-wells. One of them was me. There are so many familiar faces here. There's Chris Bryant, the Labour Shadow Minister, Chris Grayling, the Justice Minister, Brian Paddock, the uh, Liberal Democrat uh, contender for mayor, the mayor himself, he gave a speech, Ken Livingstone, he's a presenter on the station, all here to celebrate the 40th birthday of London's biggest conversation, as they call it, LBC. This is Call Clegg on London's biggest conversation, LBC 97.3. It's nine o'clock on Thursday, the 10th of October, and that means it's time for Call Clegg with me, Nick Clegg, here on the, uh, on the station that celebrated its 40th birthday this week as the first commercial radio station back then, um, LBC 97.3. It's not easy for me, I mean... You know, every week I have to listen to people bang on about Europe, immigration. Then <laughs> <laughs> after I've left the cabinet with the Tories, I have to come to LBC. Can't he allow, went against his interests and he allowed a, an independent licence for a broadcast radio 
system, LBC. <laughs> without a penny, without a penny of taxpayers' money. And uh, what a triumph it has been. You have broadcast from wars and disaster zones around the world. Yom Kippur, the Falklands, that river in Catford where I uh, fell in. Uh, <laughs> you have been the teeming womb, the teeming womb of some of the greatest broadcasting talent this nation has ever produced. From Anne Diamond, Krishnan Guru Murthy, Peter Stringfellow. Uh, <laughs> Nick Ferrari is the breakfast show host on LBC. He has the biggest ratings on the station. He is the kingpin of the station in many ways. I'm going to see if I can get a word with him. LBC. 40 years. How does the station last 40 years? Why do you think it's lasted so long? Because what you get from the listeners is never the same twice. So what it is, is it's the soundtrack of London. So just as it changes every day, so the station does. Do you really think that it reflects London? I think it reflects an important part of London, an increasingly important London, part of London, because of Boris Johnson and Nick Clegg. So, yes, undoubtedly it does. That Nick Clegg show, you're an integral part of that. Why has that been so successful? I think because people can get access to the Deputy Prime Minister, and I think because he's utterly candid. He never asks for and never sees the questions. He doesn't know what's hitting him, so he's had people rip up their party card, and he's been asked if he wears a onesie. That's pretty powerful stuff. Commercial radio, it's the very first commercial radio station. What does it say about the health of commercial radio stations now? Oh, commercial radio is in a fantastic place. Listen, I love newspapers, and I know you're with one, and my career was with them. But as they are sadly in a troublesome pot spot at the moment, radio is going from strength to strength. More people are listening to radio each week now than have ever done before. We're in a very lucky place. And you can do anything you like when you're listening to the wireless. I'm a blogger, uh, Dan Hodges. You're on LBC most weeks talking about politics and you know, the, the way of things. What is it about LBC? What do you think that, why do you think LBC is so successful? A million uh, listeners in the latest ratings. Why do you think that is? Because it speaks to ordinary people, actually. Uh, I mean, when I'm on, I'm very conscious that I'm speaking to ordinary Londoners. I'm speaking to people who aren't really interested in politics or current affairs. They're people who are just going about their daily lives. The radio's on. They just want to listen to things that in- interest and influence them. And, and you have to, when, I, when you're on, you're very conscious you've got to speak about things in a way that, that they understand because it's the you know, LBC, you know, to coin a phrase, is the people's radio station in London. Enjoying the revelry, former London Mayor, LBC weekend presenter, Ken Livingstone. Me and David Miller do this sort of three hours. And in a sense, you mostly have more influence on public opinion than you had as an MP. I mean, you've got a quarter million people listening and you're able to get out facts and information. I love it. <coughs> is it the same kind of ten subjects, or do you find it's quite varied? Well, I try and get me interested in, in global economic movements, but they'd rather hear about my sex life. Ken Livingstone there. And apologies for the sound quality. The recording was uh, quite spur of the moment. We were in a lift. It was the end of a long evening. Those are my excuses, and I'm sticking to them. Maggie, uh, 40 years of commercial radio, that must be something to celebrate, isn't it? Well, it is up to a point, the fact it's still there. And, in fact, I used to um, appear on, uh, or I used to 
be a guest on uh, on, 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 the, on the LBC. And it's still there. When it was in Gough, in, in Gough Square, just behind Fleet Street. Brian Hayes used to be a very powerful... He was there. He was there, was he? was he? at the party. Yes, he was a, he was a very good broadcaster. Um, well, yes, I mean, this was the first uh, commercial stadio- radio station. It was followed by Capital. And I remember BRMB in, in Birmingham, was where I was working. It was, again, one of these very vigorous and ambitious uh, stations at that point in time. On the other hand, commercial radio has had, a, a, to put it mildly, a very choppy ride over the past 40 years, and it has uh, never really got over the, 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 the disadvantage that the BBC still has the best frequencies. It's uh, struggled to establish any real national brand identity. Uh, it has not really been able to progress um, the, its share of advertising. In fact, it's dropped back a bit. Uh, or it did during the uh, the past uh, recession. Uh, I think also that uh, the um, that th- there's been unfortunate problems with, for example, the loss of the Virgin brand, yeah. which has really, I think, hit uh, certainly uh, the overall standing of commercial radio. And of course, remember they still haven't got um, digital switchover in radio, so they're that they're very hampered by, then that uh, by I suppose no real driver to 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 get the whole of the population to switch over. Having said that, I do think that LBC is a very vigorous station. It does reflect uh, the kind of debate that goes on in London, and I I really wish it well. What does it need? Is it distinctive enough? Do you think the trouble with? Uh, uh, commercial radio is that it was actually set up to be uh, local radio and it was meant to be have, having I think much more of a sort of relationship with grassroots communities. Now to some extent LBC has managed to do that in London but it is nowhere like the force it could be and it's noticeable really that if it, if it was a success there wouldn't be such a need for things like uh, local TV which is about to come chasing it uh, for some kind of revenue and audiences and of course community radio which had to be set up really as a sort of default mechanism because uh, commercial radio has had to inevitably turn itself into networks and of course the the big problem with radio is that uh, younger uh, people have tended not to so much go uh, or, or to be so bound up with it as they were when it first began and I think that Radio 1 has sort of always sort of to some extent held the certainly the 15 the, the kids and the younger audience especially outside of London in thrall and they've never really had that kind of cut through moment I think well uh, in some ways it was quite a um, uh, an emotional evening because yes, I, I can so imagine. they had lots of old presenters there and I just kept thinking I used to listen to you when I was a kid well LBC I mean, so, I mean it had wonderful presenters and and, and 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 many of them have gone on to dominate I mean John Snow is one of them yeah, all, yeah. All, all, they're all yeah. over the media he did the Darkham Street Seed he played some <laughs> exactly of that. I mean it gave a lot of uh, very good potential broadcasters a lot of airtime and they had fantastic guests and they could really hone their acts and then they got uh, recruited by other people, including, mm. of course, the BBC. I mean, they still do. LBC d- still does. It does pack a punch. I mean, the Ken Livingston, David Miller show, it's on Saturday, isn't it's it? It's on Saturdays, yeah. I mean, they, uh, they, they were discussing um, Cairo or, you know, foreign affairs recently in one show I was listening to, and they had fantastic guests. And the, the, the call Clegg thing has been extraordinary. Yeah, Because that gets them national newspaper coverage every single week. 
um, and so for a, you know, a station based in London wanting to extend its reach, that's been absolutely a Yeah, so I mean, it gives Radio 5 an absolute run for its money. And I think, you know, when I listened to it first when I came here in the late 80s, it would have been, or I would have identified it as a station that was known for phone-ins, you know, the Clive Bulls, the... Mm. Or Brian Hayes. Who's still there, Clive. Yeah, is he? So it was LBC first and then Capital. Don't get me started on Capital because that was my station and then I really will get misty-eyed. But Maggie Brown and Lisa O'Carroll, thanks for now. OK, time to talk TV now with The Guardian's Rebecca Nicholson. And let's start with Downton Abbey. That's upset a lot of people this week. Loads of publicity. And not just puff stories as normal, but discussions about that scene in last week's episode when... The maid, Anna Bates, was raped. Did ITV expect such a fuss? I think they did, because um, a little bit of TV insider knowledge for you here. Um, It was unavailable for preview. Now, normally we get the episodes in the week and we have our reviewers watch them before it's on air due to deadlines and all that kind of stuff. Um, And the last time this happened was when Sybil, a spoiler alert, but it's for the last series, we should be fine, was when uh, Lady Sybil died in childbirth. No preview episodes available. Mm. So this time we suspected that something big was about to happen, but we didn't quite know what. Um, I've said on this podcast a couple of times before that I don't watch Downton. I feel like it's one of the shows that life is too short for when there's so much TV to watch. But obviously this is a kind of big story. So, you know, I've been aware of it. And what did you think of it? What was your take on on this storyline? I read line? some of the discussion about whether or not it was a good idea to have something as as gritty as this on a programme that's known for not being very gritty at all, really, for being quite light, you know, light entertainment and like early in, in the evening. And so, um, you know, I think there's for and against, but uh, I, I, I'm slightly uneasy. Um, I suppose it's where they take it and whether or not that they, they, they really do provoke a, a discussion of anything or whether it was just a, a bit of a, a, a ratings lift. And there seems to have been a lot of this kind of thing on TV as well, a lot of quite graphic rape scenes on TV this year specifically. I know the women's blog um, ran a piece on it, but there was a scene, an attempted rape in the White Queen. I remember a show called Bates Motel, which is on uh, Universal yeah. Channel. There's a really graphic rape scene in the first episode of that. And it just felt like, it feels like there's kind of a lot of it on TV at the moment. The politician's husband as well. There was a, a kind of quite a graphic rape scene in that. Um, and it's just, you run the risk of becoming desensitised to it, don't you? I think there's a real debate to be had. And actually, I'm glad that that debate is being had. There's been some interesting points made on both sides. But I do wonder if Downton Abbey is the kind of cat- should be the catalyst for that debate, kind of fluffy Sunday night TV. Of course, their line was, uh, it wasn't done in a very graphic way. It was kind of fast cut with other scenes and the, 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 there was nothing uh, immediately that happened in front of camera. And that it was very, I think, tastefully done is the way they put it. But I don't know. Can you can you deal with that done? tastefully done at that? I don't know. Particularly that that early in the evening. I don't know. And I think that they're saying it's going to be a continuing storyline. So maybe. Well, that's I think where... it has to be, doesn't it? And I mean, they get a lot of stick, especially Julian Fellows gets a lot of stick for picking up storylines and dropping them at will. But I think you can't do something like this and then let it slide. Mm. You have to keep going with it, and that does seem to be his intention. Well, we'll, uh, I know you're not watching it, but others will monitor it and we'll see where they take that. Um, Let's talk about Doctor Who because apparently they've found some old editions. I mean, what 
what happens in them? Does he at any point become a Rastafarian or is there something strange uh, yeah, that we didn't know about? It's quite likely that he does. We really don't know at the moment. Um, there has been a, a secret screening of it today, which I think we can talk about given uh, when this is going online. And we like talking about secrets here at we The We like Guardian, talking about so secrets. Um, they have found two new stories, six episodes for each story. What era are they from? Do we know who's the doctor in, in, in each case? We do. They're, they're black and white, so it's Patrick Troughton. Um, one of the writers who has seen these new episodes said that as a kid he read the books of these stories. He'd never seen them, but he'd read the books and he said he actually got a bit emotional finally seeing them on the screen. He never thought he would see them. So I think for Doctor Who fans, it's a big week. The thing that occurs to me is that uh, in the old days, Doctor Who, the, the, the special effects were absolutely laughable. Um, they all looked to be made of cardboard and they all wobbled in the breeze. And if you, if you watch Doctor Who now, when it's relatively sophisticated, people will just burst out laughing, won't they? There's one thing I've learned, it's that Doctor Who fans really don't mind a bit of cardboard. They're very dedicated, I think they'll be fine with this. Cardboard's back in, but it'll be Crossroads next, but that's probably far too <laughs> early for you. What else have you been watching? It's been Sex Week on Channel 4, so we had Sex Box, which was a sort of curiously terrible idea for a show, in which people went off into a box, had sex off camera, came into the room looking a bit kind of tousled and then talked about it, which was as dull as it sounds. It was a terrible, terrible show. But I think part of this was the lead up to Masters of Sex, which is a new uh, show, <laughs> which is not the same thing. This one's not it's reality. Russell Brand, the not reality. Um, which is a new Showtime drama that's been bought by Channel 4. Michael Sheen stars as a real life sex researcher from the 60s and 70s, Dr. William Masters. Right. And tells the story of him and his assistant, Virginia, who is played by Lizzie Kaplan, who has been fantastic in several TV and film roles, but has never quite had that kind of breakout. So lots of people are hoping that this might be it. And on the basis of the pilot, it, it could well be. She far outshines Michael Sheen, who I like very much. He's a, a not, little... Not easy to it's do. It's not an easy job. I, I think he's, he's very good, but it feels like it's going to take a little while for him to settle into this role. Um, whereas she really is stealing the limelight from the start. So it's a good solid drama, good solid period drama. I think it's, it has a lot of potential. Is it smutty? No, it's not smutty. It's too classy to be smutty. Um, and obviously having sex box in the lead up to this the day before, I think that kind of gives you an idea of... Although, to be fair, sex box wasn't smutty. It was just boring. Um, but it's explicit. It's not smutty. How did sex box end up being boring? Uh, well, because people talking about it... It's kind of not that, it's just not fun. <laughs> there was no, it was really, it became really clinical and, and just a bit bland. I mean, it was like they, when Channel 4 did that programme where people took drugs on TV and then talked to them. I mean, talking to people on drugs is really boring. So you would have thought that people in TV might be aware of that fact and choose not to then put it on the box. Well, maybe you'll find that the first episode of The Master of Sex will get huge ratings, then people will realise that there's no grubby bits and they won't. Oh, there are grubby bits. Oh, okay. They're just not grubby. They're kind of, but they're kind of grubby in the context of the story, but they're well shot. Okay, Rebecca, thank you very much. We've kept it clean here, but we must go. Uh, my thanks to Maggie Brown, Lisa O'Carroll, and of course, Rebecca Nicholson. Leave all your comments on our website should you feel the need. I'm Hume, you're the producer with Simon Barnard. If you're in commercial radio land, have a drink on us. Thanks for listening. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, providing creative tools that help you bring your ideas to life. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, drag and drop tools, and 24 7 support. 
Squarespace also offers seamless e-commerce solutions for you or your small business. Every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website, so your content will look brilliant on any device. Start your free trial today, no credit card required. As a Guardian podcast listener, you'll get 10% off your new account by using the offer code GUARDIAN. 